All right, and, uh, and welcome as well to the folks watching on from Coldwater. Uh, we're cheering for you this morning as you enjoy the new facility that God has provided for you. All right, if, uh, if you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Acts chapter 17, verse 16, and that's on page 926 in the church Bibles, Acts 17, starting at verse 16, page 926. We're carrying on with the story of Paul's second missionary journey, and uh, we're taking a look in particular at his preaching on Mars Hill. Mars Hill, sometimes uh, you'll hear it referred to as the Areopagus. If, uh, if you've ever been to uh, Athens, the Areopagus is just northwest of the Acropolis, and uh, it was a place, an elevated place, that was set aside for discussions, for talks. Uh, it was uh, similar to, you know, how there, how there might be uh, a theater set aside for TED Talks or, or for whatever. It was a place for intellectual engagement. And Paul is interacting here with two philosophical schools within the wider movement of paganism. Now, to be clear, I saw the word pagan on the, um, the outline there, and uh, I thought, oh boy, I, I suppose without explanation that you might think I'm, we're making fun of somebody or we're speaking pejoratively because the word pagan today has become kind of a pejorative. We're like, oh man, look at you acting like a pagan. Um, but, but the word had a technical meaning before it took on that, that kind of secondary meaning. It, ref, it refers to the wider Greco-Roman worldview and religion. And Paul is interacting with two schools within that religion. So just, just like Christianity may have uh, different movements or schools within it. So we could talk about Roman Catholics. We could talk about Eastern Orthodox. We could talk about Protestants. Those are movements. Well, here there are movements or schools within paganism, and Paul is addressing two in particular. Luke tells us that in, in verse 18. He's addressing the Epicureans. The Epicureans uh, were an interesting group. They believed in the gods. They, they weren't atheists by any stretch, but they thought that the gods were so distant from us and entirely disinterested in us. They weren't accessible and they didn't care. And, and so it, they actually looked down on most of the actual religious practice in paganism as basically, you know, folk superstition. Look at all these silly people trying to, you know, dr- get the attention of gods who are, who are completely distant from us and don't really care uh, what we're doing or what we're saying. What, what nonsense, they would say. The key is to figure out how to live well and wisely in the world that we have. And then the Stoics, uh, the Stoics were pantheistic in their mindset. They believed that God was a sort of world spirit and that there, you know, there are lesser gods who are parts of that, manifestations of that. They believed that the universe was ordered according to a principle of reason, uh, which they referred to as the logos, and uh, so they said, you know, really, w- what we need to do is we need to watch the universe. We need to watch how things work out. We need to understand the universe so that we can operate rationally within it. And, and they saw that the enemy of reason and rational living was actually the passions. You know, we're all, we're all animals, they would say. And so we can kind of see the moral physics of the universe, but then we've got these passions that would have us operate like animals. And so really good living requires us to subordinate the passions and live according to our rational senses. And then they believed that the universe uh, was cyclical, that history was cyclical, that uh, really nothing, there was, we weren't going anywhere, everything that comes around goes around, and the key is just to watch and observe these patterns so that you can live well and wisely in the world. All right, that's who Paul is talking to. 
And that's why, by the way, this sermon sounds so different than the one we have in Acts 13. I think I mentioned back when we were preaching in Acts 13. I mean, Paul preached all the time. Like, he was hard to find a moment when he wasn't preaching. But we don't have all of his sermons, obviously, because that would make Acts an incredibly long book. We have some representative uh, sermons. And in Acts 13, we have a representative sermon, but it sounds very different than this one. And that's because in that sermon, in Acts 13, Paul is preaching to church-going, Bible-reading Jews. And you're going to preach a very different sermon to church-going, Bible-reading Jews than you're going to preach to a bunch of well-educated but biblically illiterate pagans. The, the, the church-going, Bible-reading Jews knew all of the anticipations, all the prophecies of, of Messiah. And so the sermon that Paul preaches in Acts 13 is really about how we can be sure that Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. Jesus is everything anticipated in the Old Testament. He's the son of David, and he's the suffering servant all rolled up into one. Well, of course, you can't preach that, that sermon to, to pagans because they don't know who David is. They don't have a category for Messiah. They certainly don't have a category for suffering servant. And they don't believe in a, in a God who's trying to reconcile the world to himself. They, they have zero frame of, of reference for that sermon. And so what Paul is doing here is he's going back further in the process. He's trying to construct a framework into which the coming of Jesus Christ makes sense. And of course, we're very interested in that today because we find ourselves in a similar process now. Uh, We find ourselves trying to preach a gospel to people, by and large, who have absolutely no framework with which to receive it. And that's a significant change. You know, when I was a kid, all of the atheists I met were Christian atheists, meaning the God they didn't believe in was the God of the Bible. And, and so all of our conversations were structured around Christian assumptions and Christian categories. But that's not the case anymore. The people we're talking to now out there in the culture, out in Canada, are all over the map. Many of them are materialists. So they don't necessarily know how the universe got here. They may have some theories that they they enjoy, but they don't really know. They just know that material is all there is. All we have is the physical world. There's nothing above the physical world. No one's stirring the pot. The pot just is. You know, and we're all just animals. We're all, you know, accidentally evolved monkeys. And the universe has no meaning. And 4.5 billion years from now or so, it will probably explode in a giant supernova. And we will all cease to exist. And nobody will care about your little problems. So eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. They're fun at parties, those folks. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, lots, lots of people have more interesting theories than that. I, uh, the one I, I think is rather amusing, there are lots of folks apparently who think that the universe is a, is a giant computer simulation, that there's a super intelligence out there who is, I guess, running some kind of rat experiment with you, and, uh, you know, just kind of uh, finding this all very interesting, but, but again, uh, you know, no... no God, per se, just maybe a superintelligence playing a game on us, kind of, kind of like the Matrix. Then you'll see other folks who have uh, some, some interesting ideas out of quantum physics. Maybe there's an infinite number of universes. Maybe our universe is just one of many. Maybe we exploded as some kind of quantum burp, and, uh, and we'll cease to be in some other kind of quantum burp. And so again, life doesn't really matter. Uh, conduct yourselves however you please. Lots of starting places out there. Uh, nowadays. But again, very little biblical background for us to call upon as we try to speak to people about Jesus Christ. So how do you preach the gospel to folks like that? Well, you've got to do exactly as Paul is doing here. You've got to construct 
a biblical framework. That's where you have to begin. So let's look and see how Paul does it. Hopefully you have your Bible open by now to Acts 17. I'll begin reading at verse 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in this story, we see the Apostle Paul addressing the cultural elites of his day. This would be the equivalent of being asked to give a TED Talk. Um, A couple of years ago, before his passing, Tim Keller was actually invited to address uh, the staff and uh, management of Google, which was was a big deal, kind of similar sort of situation. Or maybe this is like being invited to, to give an address at Harvard or Oxford. It's that kind of situation. Paul is speaking to highly educated but biblically illiterate pagan people. And he preaches a sermon that has basically four points. Now, uh, biblical scholars will tell you that on, uh, these sorts of lectures that were given at the Areopagus typically lasted between three and four hours. Uh, we just read that in about seven minutes. And so D.A. Carson actually suggests that probably what we have here is Luke has taken all of Paul's kind of subject headings and just mashed them into a paragraph. And so this is less a transcript and more an outline. 
Uh, but still very useful for us to know the sorts of things, the sorts of topics that Paul covers. He begins with the doctrine of creation. And so you've got a bit of a, uh, an introduction. Every pastor has an introduction, right? Or every preacher, there's a joke or whatever. And then, and then you get into it. So he says, I see, you know, he says, I was walking through, I was walking through town just this morning. I noticed uh, you, got, you, got, you guys are very religious. I appreciate that about you. Uh, you got altars to everything here. I even saw an altar to an unknown God. Well, what you worship is unknown. Let me declare to you. That's his introduction. And then look where he begins. Look at verse 24. He begins with the God who made the world and everything in it. So he begins with the doctrine of creation. The Greeks believed that the universe was eternal. And as I mentioned, the Stoics actually believed that the universe was cyclical. What comes around goes around. History just repeats itself. There's no purpose. There's no end point. There's just existence. Patterned, logical existence. That's what they believed. But Paul says, no. No, the universe had a beginning, and the universe has a creator. And that changes everything, doesn't it? If the universe doesn't have a creator, if the universe has just always existed, then we really are the highest reference point in the universe. We are basically gods unto ourselves, deciding right and wrong for ourselves. We are the masters of our own destiny. We make reality. We can use our words to create reality as opposed to reflecting reality. It really does all begin here. This is how you get paganism. This is where paganism begins. These are the headwaters. Paul says in Romans 1, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So according to Paul, all paganism begins with the fundamental decision to de-God God. To say, well, I don't believe in a God at the top and a universe underneath him. Maybe there's a God, maybe there's not. That's where all the pagans, or that's where these pagans were. They either believed that there was a God or they thought, yeah, there's there's a God, but he's very distant from us, whatever. But what they do is they, in essence, demote God. So he's not the sovereign God over everything who's in charge. He might be in the universe, right? So the world spirit, maybe he's in the trees, maybe he's in the air, right? So they bring God down and they lift man up, and now we can negotiate reality a little bit. And that's what paganism was. But that's not how the universe is, Paul says. There, there is somebody at the top. There is a creator. You have a beginning. You are subject And see, the gospel's not going to make sense to anybody who doesn't understand that. If you think the universe is an accident, if if, if you think there's no creator, if you think there's no purpose, if you think there's no law, then how in the world are you ever going to make sense of Jesus on the cross? I mean, what is Jesus on the cross in a a, a universe that's a complete accident? What is Jesus on the cross if we're all just accidentally evolved monkeys? That doesn't make any sense. You have to construct a world in which there is a creator, in which there is order, in which there is purpose, in which there is destiny, in which there is righteousness and unrighteousness, in which there is law and rebellion in order for Jesus on the cross to make sense. So Paul begins there. And more often than not in our day, we're going to have to do the same. Second thing we see Paul talking about here is the doctrine of aseity. The doctrine of aseity. Now, your grandparents probably knew that word if they were church-going folks. Uh, we don't use that word anymore, but I think we need to bring it back. 
The doctrine of aseity refers to the fact that God doesn't need us, we need him. So Paul says in verse 24 and verse 25 that the God who is creator, the God who made all things, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So here Paul is striking at the heart of all pagan religion. Uh, the, when the Greeks and the Romans reached out for God or interacted with God, those who did, right, the Epicureans thought it was a waste of time, but the rest of the folks who are reaching out for God, when they did that, it was usually to negotiate with God or to manipulate God. It was to get something from God. That was the essence of pagan religion, right? Because the gods were in the universe with us, higher than us, so they had access to resources we don't have. They could do things we could not do, but they were not necessarily sovereign over it. But they were in the universe, and so you could appeal to them. You could make a deal, as it were. You could say, listen, we just, you know, conquered the Carpathians, and we've got some, some virgins. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll give you some of these virgins as priests, priestesses, and uh, we'll sacrifice a couple of bulls. I know you like the bulls. And so if you do that, uh, if we give you that, then could perhaps you take an interest in our next harvest, or could perhaps you get, have my wife produce a, a child, or, or could you perhaps take an interest in my next business venture, Right? It was, it was tit for tat. We, we give God what the gods what, what they want, and then hopefully they'll give us what we want. And Paul strikes right at the heart of that. He says, hey, listen, the God who is there is not hungry. He is not lonely. He is not cold. He is not warm. He has no body. He needs no thing. The God who is there is the giver. He loves, therefore he created. He is good, therefore he gives. And so when we worship him, we receive and respond. Religion, therefore, is about gratitude, imitation, and response. We receive from God and we give to others. That is the rhythm of all true and pleasing religion. Now, not only would that have been news to the pagans who were listening to Paul in the first century, it would also be news to many Christians sitting in the pews of Christian churches today. When, when you listen to Christians talk, there is a fair bit of like nascent paganism there. In our inner monologue, we're often pagans, aren't we, when we're negotiating with God. If you are negotiating with God, you are essentially functioning as a pagan. If you're saying, God, you know, listen, I will read my Bible, I will be more regular in church attendance, I will up my giving, if you could just help me get a date with that lady over there, or, if, or, if, or more seriously, if you could cure my child from cancer, right? That's a pagan prayer, essentially. It, it, it is built in the assumption that God needs something that we can give, and God has something that we would like to receive. And, and so we think that way, we pray that way, and of course, we, we often sing that way too. There was, a, there was an interesting controversy, I think it was back in 2017, about uh, the song, What a Beautiful Name. Do you know that song? What a beautiful name it is. I won't, anyway, I won't sing it, but uh, interesting controversy. Uh, because of the line. Do you, do you remember the line? Um, you didn't want heaven without us, and so you came down. And so people were asking, hey, wait a second, is that, is that like a, a paganism thing? Like are we, saying, are we saying God was lonely up in heaven? 
Now, we sang that song, I think, two weeks ago. Or it was the last Sunday or the Sunday before. So obviously, I don't, I don't think it's pagan. Uh, and in fact, it is biblical because uh, Jesus in John 17 says that he wants us to be with him where he is. He wants us to see the glory that he had um, before all creation. So he, he wants us to see that. So it's not wrong to say that. It, basically, what we decided in that little controversy is it depends on what's going on in your mind when you sing that line. If, if, you, think, if you think the song is just saying, you know, Jesus wanted us to be with him, which is sort of the, it's just saying it the opposite. He didn't want us not to be with him, right? So he, he wanted us to be, then that's okay. But if, but if you think like Jesus was lonely up in heaven, like if in your mind you're singing, you know, he didn't have any friends in heaven, so Jesus, you can Like if that's what the song is, that's bad on so many levels, right? If you're singing, if you're singing that, get out! No, I'm not just, no. If you're singing that, like, that's, you got to stop. That's paganism. Like, let's be clear. It isn't that Jesus was sad and lonely, kind of moping around heaven, no one to play with. And, uh, and so God says, well, why don't you just go on down there and grab some folks? Like, no. Uh, God exists in Trinity, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he has been content and full and joyful forever. So actually what, what we believe as Bible readers is that creation is the overflow of joy. God was already like maximally joyful, maximally whole and content, but there was an overflow, a desire to share that. And understanding that actually helps you get into the rhythm of why we do worship. Like we, we come in to be filled, to be included in the overflow of God. And then the thought is that we'll now overflow in love and service and inclusion to others, right? That's the rhythm. So this is not manipulation. This is overflow. Overflow. And, and we try to subtly push back on that pagan mindset with, you know, again, subtly, just with the words we use. That's why we always talk about overflow church. That's why when you come in through the doors, what does it say above the doors? See if anyone looks. It's been every day for the last 10 years. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And then what does it say when you leave? Go, therefore. So there's this rhythm. We just, we come in, our cups are filled. And, and it's interesting. I, I used to hear, when I first started here, I used to hear lots of people say, and now, because they usually push back on it, they've stopped. And hopefully, because well, we talk about it a lot, folks have figured it out. People will say, like, you know, I don't come here for me. I'm here for the Lord today. As though we're saying, you know, Poor God is up there, you know, and with all the stuff, bad stuff going on in the world, his self-esteem is a little low right now. And so we're just going to come and pump his tires a little bit, and then, and then we'll go out, right? I'm here. I'm here. I brought my pump. I'm going to pump up Jesus just a little bit. And I always just, you know, we'll just subtly push back and say, well, I hope you, you are here for you, because I know you enough to know that you need to be here. Like, you leak. That's your thing, right? And so you need to come. And you, you know what church is? Church is like, and you know what a pastor is? A pastor is like a waiter. My job is to go and get good stuff from the table, from the bounty of the Lord, and just walk up and down with it. And just make sure that you get a portion. Because you know what? You're hungry, you're thirsty, you leak, you need to be here. But can I tell you something? God is doing very well today. Thank you. That's, that's the doctrine of aseity. And 
And we need to understand that. We need to understand that before we go out and try to share Jesus with the neighbors. Because you know what? If you don't understand this rhythm, if you don't understand that all real religion, all biblical religion is about grace, it is about God giving you what you need, then how in the world are you going to ever share with people the grace of God in Jesus Christ? You learn this in Sunday school. You just forget it, right? Because you go out into the pagan world and you got a pagan whisperer in your heart called the devil. But you learn this in Sunday school. Say it with me if you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. See, biblical religion from start to finish is about grace. Third thing Paul speaks about here in this address is the doctrine of anthropology or the doctrine of man, however you want to think about that. He's speaking about that in verses 26 to 29. The Greeks did not believe in the unity of the races. In fact, they believed that they, as Greek people, were superior to all others, and they referred to non-Greek speakers as barbarians. By the way, that's a funny word. I learned this in university, and I feel like I should make use of all that education uh, that my parents paid for. Thank you, Mom and Dad. Uh, but so actually, the, the word barbarian is just what Greeks referred to. Greeks thought that you were a stupid person indeed if you couldn't speak Greek. Uh, right? Like, I mean, and so if you spoke slowly and with hand gestures, it was a particularly stupid person who could not speak Greek because they just sort of thought this is the language of God implanted in our soul. And so people who spoke back to them in a way they couldn't understand, it was just like bar, 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 bar. And so they literally just referred to them as barbarians, uh, like the mumbly jumbly people. That's got nothing to do. I'm not even sure why I share that. It just recurs to my mind. I learned that. Anywho, uh, but they felt very superior to everyone else and looked down on everybody who wasn't Greek as basically halfway between an animal and a human. Interestingly, that is fairly common if you know anything about history and anthropology. Most ethnic groups uh, believe themselves to be superior to other groups. Racism is normal. Now, hear me carefully. I'm not saying it is good. I'm saying it is normal. It is par for the course throughout human history. Most human beings throughout history have believed in the superiority of their group and have generally looked with suspicion and contempt upon people from other groups. If you know anything about history, you know this. The Chinese believe themselves superior to non-Chinese as a group, not all Chinese people. The Japanese believe themselves superior to other group, not all Japanese, but as a group. The same could be said of many, in fact, most ethnic groups. It isn't white people who invented racism. The devil invented racism as part of his divide and conquer strategy, and it is as old as the book of Genesis itself. And the truth is that it is only the Christian worldview that has slowly but surely undermined racism and xenophobia within the human story. Christianity was the first major movement in the world to say things like, here there is not Greek and Jew, uncircumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all, Colossians 3.11. The Christian said, we can all be one big happy family again through the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
They believed that because of Genesis 1 and 2. They believed, as Paul says here, that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Christianity teaches that all human beings have a common ancestor. And we believe, therefore, that all human beings are equal in dignity and worth. We are all one species. We are all, in a sense, sons and daughters of God. And whenever and wherever human beings don't believe that, you get war, genocide, and holocaust. Do you know what the original title was, the full-length title for Darwin's Origin of Species? Whenever it's taught in school nowadays, we just use the short form, and there's a reason for that. We use the short form. We just say, Darwin's Origin of Species. Here was the original title. On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Did you catch that? Favored Races. Darwin was writing to explain why some people were winners and some people were losers. It's not a huge leap from Darwin to Nietzsche to Hitler to the Holocaust. That's what happens when you believe that some people are losers and some people are winners. That some people are better and more pure and more favored than others anthropology matters. And so Paul includes that in his presentation to the pagans on Mars Hill. He concludes his speech to them by addressing the doctrine of eschatology. Eschatology just means what we believe about the end or the purpose, the destination towards which history is moving. Remember, the Greeks did not believe that there was an end, that history was moving towards anything. They believed that the universe was eternal and cyclical. It always existed, it always would exist, And history was just going around in a giant circle. Not so, Paul says. Look at verse 30. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So according to the Bible, history has seasons or stages, and it has an end. Paul says we've just come through something called the age of ignorance, the times of ignorance. And things are ramping up now towards a time of final judgment. That final judgment will not be the absolute end of the human story. We know there's something beyond that because God raised Jesus from the dead. So we have order, progress, and purpose in human history, all of which would have been foreign to Paul's pagan hearers, but all of which are clearly taught in the Bible. Paul says that God organized people into particular nations and put them in particular places all toward the end that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Now, as Bible readers, we know that may have been the plan, but it didn't actually ever work out in the Old Testament because the Jewish people, far from shining the light, they were supposed to shine the light and help other people find their way to God. They were created as a, as a, as a kingdom of priests, Their their job was to speak to the world on behalf of God and to speak to God on behalf of the world. But far from actually influencing people in the direction of the worship of God, the Israelites were actually influenced by the nations to worship idols. And so that's why the middle stage here didn't seem to go anywhere. It went on interminably because there wasn't a lot of light coming from Israel to help the nations grope their way to God. 
But thankfully, Paul says, that stage is over now. And a brighter light has come into the world. And so now we're on a fairly steep ramp towards the final judgment. God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So all of human history is hurtling towards a funnel, a very narrow passageway and point. All of human history is leading toward and through a final judgment. All human beings are going to stand before God and give an account for their lives. They're going to hear God say, either, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master, or away from me, for I never knew you. And after that, a whole new creation. That's where the apostle ends his speech. This is clearly pre-evangelism. In fact, it's amazing to think about all the things that he doesn't cover in this sermon. Think about that for a second. He doesn't say anything about the virgin birth. He doesn't say anything about the sinless life of Christ. He doesn't even mention Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. This is pre-evangelism. This is the framework that people are going to need to have in order to hear the gospel. All right, now we're almost out of time, but before we do, I want to zoom out. We've been looking at what Paul said. Now I want you to take a few minutes and just hear some or notice some of how Paul said what he said. Very quickly then, when preaching the gospel to pagans or when sharing the gospel, it's not just preaching from a pulpit, sharing the gospel with pagans, when trying to help them construct a framework into which Christ makes sense, it's going to be helpful for us to do the following. Number one, avoid doctrinal obscurities. Notice that Paul sticks to the big rocks and the main roads of Christian theology. He doesn't get down into the weeds. He talks about the big things. He talks about who God is, who we are, and where history is going. And we need to do the same. We don't get down into, you know, tribal distinctives. We don't get into our our particular view of baptism or the rapture or women's head coverings. Those are all legitimate conversations, but those are intramural conversations. Paul sticks to the main roads when he is dealing with pagan outsiders, and so should we. We're constructing a frame, not filling in all the blanks. Second takeaway I think we can find here is the need to address points of interest and intersection. Paul wasn't dealing in the abstract. If he were talking to different people, I'm sure there would have been shades of difference in his presentation. He spoke about things. He constructed a worldview in a way that it made contact with the worldview of his hearers. He intentionally looks for intersection and also points of contrast. So he takes, uh, for example, as a starting place, this altar to an unknown God. Okay, he says, so obviously you're ready to admit that there's more going on in the heavenly realm than you know, right? That you're saying our understanding of these things is limited. Good, let me, let me speak to you about that. Let me tell you more about what you don't know. Paul is aware of all the questions these folks are asking, and he tailors his presentation to address them. R.C. Sproul says helpfully here, his speech answered the three biggest questions they struggled with, life, motion, and being, right? So where do we come from? Where are we going? And who are we? You have to know the questions that people are asking. All the Greek philosophical schools were actually arranged around attempts to answer those questions. And most of the major worldview positions that exist today are still organized around answering those questions. Why are we here? What is the meaning of life? Where are we going? Why are humans special? But why do we feel like we are not now the people we were supposed to be? Those are the sorts of questions 
the, if you provide answers to those questions, those answers become the basis of your worldview. Paul understood that. That's good pre-evangelism. Then thirdly, as we see Paul doing here, we also need to acknowledge common grace. We have to be careful not to begin on a hostile footing. So much of evangelism and apologetics today seems to be about tearing people down so that you can lift them up with the gospel. There are approaches to apologetics where this is said explicitly. You need to show people that everything they believe is stupid and illogical, and, and then, you know, having basically knocked them to the ground uh, with, with your Bible and with your logic, then, you know, build them up with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But notice that's not what the Apostle Paul does. He commends them. He says, I see you're very religious. Good. And, and he actually quotes to them from several of their own sources, several of their own poets. You can see him doing that in verse 28. I, Howard Marshall, says here, Paul was prepared to take over the glimmerings of truth in pagan philosophy about the nature of God. That's what it means to acknowledge common grace. It means to acknowledge that even outside of our boundaries, even, even in places where maybe the gospel hasn't been heard, even for people who've never read their Bible, there may be some very true and good and beautiful things that they know and believe and say. It's important for us to understand that our friends and neighbors don't know enough to be saved. I'm not saying that. But they do know many things that are true, many things that are noble, and many things that are good. And acknowledging that can build a bridge and soften a heart. And then finally, when we find ourselves engaging with people who have no real framework for receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to allow for time to process Look at how the story ends, verses 20, uh, 32 to 33. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. So Paul gave his presentation. Some people mocked, some people were interested, and Paul went home. That's very interesting. He didn't press right then and there for a decision. He didn't make an altar call and play 16 verses of just as I am. He understood that there was some work to do here before we got to that point. And these folks were going to need a little time to process. Now, listen, I don't want you to overhear that. I'm not saying that there's never a time to call for decision. I think there is. But I think there's also time to recognize that perhaps we need a more patient and plotting approach in certain circumstances. It's interesting to, to look at the different ways we did evangelism in different seasons in our culture. In the 50s and 60s, the main approach to evangelism was the Billy Graham crusade, right? Now, I want you to hear me very carefully. I'm not denigrating that. I think in the 50s and 60s in North America, it was probably a reasonably safe assumption that most people knew all the categories. Most people knew there was a creator. Most people knew that human beings were special. Most people knew that human beings were accountable to God. Most people knew that we didn't live up even to our own understanding of what righteousness was. And therefore, most people were by and large ready to hear about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And having heard it before, we're probably ready right then and there to be pressed for decision. The reality is, I, I think safely, you know, in 1973, you could lean into people and say, now you know, now you know, and today is the day of decision. Well, I don't think you can say that in every circumstance today. Now, we might say it here from time to time because there are many of you who are sitting here today, you know. You've heard, your wife has been dragging you here since 1973. You know. You know. 
and today's the day to make a decision. So it's still appropriate. But in, in many circumstances, we're, we're now talking to people who don't have a framework. And so we're going to need to adopt that more patient and plotting approach. The, res- the approach today might be, would you join me in a, in, a, in, a, in a little small group discussion? I'm getting three or four people together. We're going to go through the Gospel of John. I, I was preaching down in Hamilton a while ago, and I had a fellow come up to me. This is one of the most gratifying things I've ever heard, because this is why we do it. He said, I just wanted you to know, I've been using your uh, End of the Word podcast ev- evangelistically. I just, I ask people if they'd like to read through a book of the Bible with me, and we, and we go through something like John or Mark or whatever, and then we just meet over coffee and we talk. And I'm just trying to help these, help these guys understand Christ as revealed in Scripture. And I was like, that's it exactly. It might take... 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 15, 18 weeks now before you're ready to say, now listen, now you know. Now you know, you're ready to make a decision. Maybe a bit of a more plotting approach. Paul, in this story, was happy to settle for the first down, if I can use that analogy without hopelessly distracting you. He was, didn't feel the need to go for the Hail Mary, if you don't know what that means, asks a football fan after, after the service. He was content just to move the chains, right? We're going to make some progress here. We're going to establish a framework. He understood that he had not told them everything they needed to know to get saved, but he had moved the ball. He understood that they would need to hear more in order to become the children of God through faith in Christ. Sometimes that's the mission, though. Sometimes the mission is to establish a framework, create connections, point out contrasts, and call for prayerful and humble consideration. And of course, of course, to do all of that with gentleness and respect. Oh God, help. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the bounty of your word, for the wisdom and the guidance we find therein. And Lord, this feels very timely. Uh, We're not in Acts 13 anymore, by and large, in our culture. We're in Acts 17. Uh, We're having to start from scratch. We're having to help people figure out that this universe is not an accident, that it came from somewhere, and in fact, it came from you. In the beginning, God, and that you're there, and that you're watching, and that history is moving towards an end date, and we will stand before our Creator at some point and give an account for our lives, and therefore, we need mercy, and we need grace. And so, Lord, help, help us uh, to have these kinds of conversations. Help us to know the times and to know the tools, and to speak winningly and winsomely to our friends and neighbors on behalf of Christ. We ask in his holy name, amen.